Hi, this is Liz Tinkham, and welcome to Third Act, a podcast about people embracing the third act of their lives with a new sense of purpose and direction. The third act begins when your script ends, but your show's just not finished. On today's episode of Third Act, I'm so happy to bring you my friend, Chantelle Brayfogle, fondly referred to as the Energizer Bunny. Chantelle is French. She grew up in Champagne, France as one of 10 kids. She married a musician, moved to the United States, and learned to speak English by watching a combination of game shows and soap operas and wrapping gifts at the local Mervyn store in Southern California, for those who don't know. She was a quick learner, finding her way to corporate jobs and eventually discovering a passion for sales, eventually going on to run Sprint's West Region as their operations manager. But life also took a toll as she both developed breast cancer and got divorced. Not wanting to be defined as a cancer patient, she got treatment and got right back to work. But when cancer came back, she found a home in working with and helping the Susan Coleman Foundation in Greater San Diego. She's dedicated her third act to working and raising money for Komen, developing innovative new revenue streams, and raising $450,000 for the cause. Chantal, bienvenue à Troisième Acte. Oh, merci beaucoup. It's my pleasure to talk to you today. Well, I'm so fortunate that I just got to see you in San Diego, where I enjoyed perhaps, no, I know, the most spectacular lunch of my life on your patio, of course, socially distanced. So thank you for that again. Oh, you're so welcome. And I'm looking forward to the day where we don't have to socially distance. I've served so many meals in my backyard and my front patio. I want to be able to entertain people in true style in my dining room. So 10 kids, it's a lot of kids. Mom leaves, mom comes back. Your first act does not resemble any of the rest of my guests. Who kept you moving forward throughout the turbulence of your childhood? So my father had very high expectations when it came to grades. He was a very smart man, and each child in the family had a different set of expectations when it came to average GPA at school, mine being eight. Uh And it was kind of an interesting way to raise kids because we tried to be fair to our kids, and I thought that was completely unfair, but he felt (laughs) like I had the ability to get A's, so I was expected to get A's. And when I did that, it came a lot of freedom. You know, uh, I could do anything I wanted to do as long as I had good grades. So that was pretty good. I was also blessed with friends whose parents really took an interest in guiding me as one of their own children. They took me to visit colleges, helped me fill out financial aids, applications. I had the opportunity to thank them actually about three years ago. I met with a couple of my friends' parents from childhood and told them what an impact they had had in my life without really knowing it. Oh, that's so cool. So you end up, you go to college, but you weren't able to finish. Is that correct? Yeah, I did not. Unfortunately, I had to go home and help my family. My mother left my father and I had four young siblings still at home and my father was considering an orphanage. And it was, yeah, not something that I could deal with. So it was my decision. I still believe it was the right thing to do. And looking back at my life today, this was probably the start of my survivor skill training. (laughs) Early on. So you marry a musician. Was he also French? Yes. His father was American and his mother was French. So he grew up back and forth in between New York and the south of France. Okay. So, and you both decide, or he decides that you want to go to the United States? 
Yeah, he was in the music industry and Los Angeles at the time was the place to be for his career. So we made the joint decision to move here. I was 19 years old. <laughs> That's 19. You're not speaking in much English at this point. I Zero. Take Zero. The only words I knew were yes and no and exit. Exit because it's on the plane everywhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so how do you wrap presents when you can't speak English? Well, the truth is probably you smile a lot, but <laughs> I was um, lucky. My father-in-law at the time knew the store manager at the Mervyn store. And so they agreed to give me an interview. Given that I didn't speak any English, they took a map of the U.S. and showed me where all the Mervyn stores were on the map. And they hired me one day a week for gift wrap. So they taught me just a couple basic words. Of, you know, this is the complimentary wrap. And if they don't want complimentary, then you ask them to pick a number. And the number depicted the occasion for which the gift was to be for. And then I knew cash or charge. <laughs> so, so, you know, some of the, the limitation probably led to a few stressful moments with customers because one customer one day wanted a courtesy wrap, not a complimentary. I didn't know that word. And when I said cash or charge, I could tell that I'd made a big mistake. <laughs> <laughs> and But while you're not working, this is when you're watching the soap operas? I watched a lot of I Love Lucy's and like The Price is Right because The Price is Right. Yeah, they show you like a washing machine, a car. So they say all the names of all the things they show. So you can associate the picture with the word. And then they write the number on, on the little podium thing. So now you can also learn numbers. And then Sesame Street, you learn pronunciations, you know, so. So, but eventually you figure out you, you, you're self-taught in some accounting and then get a job at the Price Club. How did you manage to get yourself with enough English and situated enough so that you could get to Price Club, which is now Costco? So, you know, you'd be surprised how quick you learn when you have to. So I, I learned to speak English within six months, I would say, probably. I was pretty fluent and I went to a technical school and got a certificate and I took some junior college classes and accounting basic skills. And I already had some accounting in high school. I started a price club in the marketing department. I got the job through a networking opportunity for a friend. And then after maybe a year in the marketing department, I transferred to the financial planning department, which was really my interest. And I was fortunate to have really great mentors, which resulted after a few years in managing the financial planning for the entire U.S. for Price Club. That's just incredible. I mean, just to think, and this was not that long after you'd been there, come to the U.S., is that correct? This was, um, no, this was seven years after. So well, it's I, not that long. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. 19, yeah. musician, no English, and now you're running a major operation for Price Club seven years later. Yes. You get to Nextel, which eventually becomes Sprint. And what do you first start off doing there? So at Nextel, I was hired to be the finance manager for the San Diego office. Because we were such small, I mean, this was the startup of Nextel. We had 17 sales sites, small, small operations. We were still raising capital to launch nationwide. And so they also asked me to do HR to take a second hat and recruit salespeople, do payroll, that type of thing. So that's how I started there. And then as we grew, 
and I then became separated from my husband, I realized that I needed to provide for my family at a different level on my own. So I decided to transition into sales because I figured I could write my own paycheck. I think that's a really good point for people, uh, maybe for some of our younger listeners who look at sales and are afraid of quotas. You probably had a quota. I certainly had a quota. Mm -hmm. But I think we both saw the same thing. That's where you make the most money. Is that what you found as well? Yeah. Well, every year, you know, we roll out new comp plans, which I put together as my part of my finance role. And then the salespeople would come in to see the HR person, which I also was, and complained about, you know, how am I going to get there? And I always sat there and helped them figure out how they could do it. You know, I said, I'm never going to run out of phones for you to sell. So, you know, you can do this. You know, here's what you need to do and breaking it down for them. And I learned a lot about sales, actually recruiting salespeople, working with sales managers. And then I just thought, you know, I think I can do this. And I loved it. Yes, I, you know, started in the regular sales team, then I went to the major account sales team. Then I eventually created my own program where we had partnership with chambers of commerce and professional associations. So the BIA, the Building Industry Association, CAR, California Association of Realtors, where as a package for their members, they would offer discounts on Nextel phones. We would pay them a royalty. I managed the relationship and it was a way to sell thousands of phones very quickly. Cha-ching, cha-ching for you as well, right? <laughs> yes, yes, so yes, yes. Your first cancer diagnosis comes in 2003. What's happening with you and your life at that point? So at that point, I was a single mom. I had a five-year-old and a 12-year-old. I was in sales at Nextel. I had moved to the indirect channel. I was managing most of SoCal's uh, independent resellers. So just independent ones at this point. It was a very scary time. You know, as you can imagine, when you hear the word cancer for the first time, the, the first thing that comes to your mind is what will happen to my kids if I don't make it? You know, that's the only thing I thought about, the the two of them, what will happen to them? I'm on my own. It was very, very scary. But, you know, I was very proactive with my healthcare. I had never missed a mammogram or a doctor's appointment. So I was very lucky it was caught at a very early stage. Okay. And at this point, when you're going through your breast cancer treatment, are you using Coleman services? Are you aware of what they're doing? No, not really. The first time I just kind of went, you know, I had one surgery and I had radiation. I would go to radiation treatment on my lunch hour. I would sit in the waiting room and look at all the people around me that looked so sick. And I wasn't one of those people. So I I didn't think of myself sick. I didn't think myself a cancer patient. I just kind of moved on with my life and never looked back. It was kind of a bump in the road and that was it. We have another guest, Anne Devereaux Mills, who also had different kind of cancer, but she said the same thing, that she was working full time. She would go do it on her lunch hour or after work. I did the same thing when I was having radiation before work, but I never I never wanted that sort of moniker of cancer on me. And it, you didn't either. And she didn't either. No. And the first time I didn't have chemo. So, you know, when you have chemo and you lose your hair, that makes it very public. But with radiation... Radiation, nobody would have known. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So you go on your second act, you do great at Sprint. You're the West Region sales operations lead. 
you're managing all their dealers, like you mentioned. How did that come to a close? Like what ended the second act, so to speak? Well, I really loved my career at Sprint, you know, helping businesses grow and managing all the national retailers. But after I was diagnosed for the second time in 2010, at the time I was engaged to be remarried. And this time I had to have seven different surgeries and I had chemo for a year every three weeks. My company was reorganizing, or, you know, Sprint was yet changing and I was reassessing my career goals. I had one more son at home. I did not want to be an empty nester and retire all at the same time. And so I decided to flip the order of things around and I retired, enjoyed my last two years with my son in high school and started my third act at the same time. How is it that this time you find Komen? So the first time I went in for chemo, this woman came in and introduced herself to me and she told me she would be my breast cancer patient navigator. And I always remember thinking how odd that title was. Okay. How come? Why did you think it was odd? Navigator. That's just not a (laughs) medical term, you know? But you kind of need it, but I get it. Yeah. Now that I've been for cancer twice, that's the perfect title because it definitely requires navigation skills because there are so many surgeries and treatment options. So on my last chemo, I asked her who her manager was because I wanted to send a letter to let them know what a great asset she was to them. And she told me that she was not a hospital employee, but she was funded by a Komen grant. And I had walked the Susan G. Komen 5K in San Diego many times with my coworker. But like most people, I really had no idea what exactly the organization did, except for, you know, breast cancer research as a whole. Um, so that kind of like got me thinking about Komen and on my last chemo, my chemo buddy gave me a pink notebook and she told me, you go do something with this. So I go meet with Komen and I have this idea that maybe we could build a network of hairdressers that could go to people's home when it's time to shave their heads, because that's just such a horrible moment in your breast cancer journey. But unfortunately, that didn't come to fruition because of liability issues. But I started talking with them and, you know, said, instead of reinventing the wheel, I want to contribute and serve to your in your organization. What can I do? And so I started reviewing grants. And that led to chairing the grants committee, revamping all the audit process for the grants, uh, a seat on the board for six years. And many opportunities, speakers, bureau, lots of things we've come in this time. I know a lot of people who've had cancer. I know a lot of people who've walked in a Komen walk or ran a race, but you're the only person I know who's like dove in and invented new revenue sources. Talk about dine out for the cure. And how did you come up with that? Okay. So I'm French. You know, I'm passionate about food and cooking I wanted to find a way to combine my passion for food and helping Komen. So Dine Out was born. I went and talked to the CEO of Komen and pitched the idea of, you know, in San Diego, there's only one of those for AIDS. It's Dine Out for Life. And I said, you know, why don't we do something where we talk to restaurants or we partner with restaurants in October during Breast Cancer Awareness Month, only one day, and in exchange for marketing materials and media opportunity, Restaurants donate a percentage of their revenue. 
And we started really small and we eventually grew to close to 100 restaurants last year. This year, we had to put it on hold because of the pandemic. I found sponsors for the marketing materials, so it didn't cost us anything to put the program together. That also put limits on us on how many restaurants we could accept because we could only give so much. I didn't want to spend money. I wanted to make money. It just kept growing. It's still going. It'll come back after the pandemic, I assume, as well. We'll see how restaurants are open to donating. I think they've been hit so hard. It's going to be complicated. But you generated a brand new revenue source, significant for Komen. Yes. And between that and my team, Energizer Bunny, I've raised over 450, close to $500,000. Who is your team, Energizer Bunny? Uh, so my team are the people that we walk with. The Busbees are part of it. So the network of people, I probably have, you know, 40 people. I have a poker, annual poker night. That's a fundraiser for Coleman at my house where I usually have 60 to 100 people. Everybody pays to play poker. And at the end of the night, the winner gets a dinner for 10 cooked by me. Hosted, <laughs> and all the money goes just to win that, <laughs> and all the money goes to Coleman. So that's part of my fundraising as Team Energizer Bunny. And then I actually have a lot of my salespeople that I've managed that to this day still fundraise for me. So with all of that and all the money that's gone on, what progress have you seen since 2003 in terms of both the breast cancer treatment? as well as help for women, their families, and their caregivers? Over the last decade, we've increased survival rates for early stage breast cancer, and I'm going to say early stage, to 99%. Between stage zero and one, if you're caught early, 99% chance of survival. Uh, we have decreased mortality rates by 34% since 1990. And we are the largest group of, of cancer survivors of any types of cancer. We have over 3 million survivors in the U.S. What more needs to be done? In addition to finding a cure, just based on your work, what else needs to be done? So I'm going to say education and prevention. We need women to be aware of their normal, to know their body, not skip their mammogram, and do monthly breast self-exam. If we added no additional funds today to research or new drugs or new procedures, we would still decrease mortality and increase survival rates just with those two things. Do your monthly breast exam. Do not skip your mammograms. And it's so important for younger women because a lot of younger women don't feel like they're a breast cancer candidate. Unfortunately, the trends are showing that women are being diagnosed earlier and earlier. They don't have mammograms till they're 40. So if they don't do a monthly breast exam, they have no chance of catching it early. How old were you in when you first got it? The first time I was 42. And see, I was 38. So both young. Right. I cannot tell you how many 25, 28, 29-year-old women I have met since I've been serving on the Komen board. I speak to a lot of people and I've met a lot of women with breast cancer, so many young, and they're metastatic and they don't make it because they just didn't do that step. So that's the one thing. And also another thing that's important is understanding that 80% of women who get diagnosed, it doesn't run in their family or they don't have the gene. So that's is also important. 
So I think many members of the audience who listen to this podcast are considering philanthropic work as part of the third act. And many of them are already doing that. So, But you've gone into it in a very big way. You've made a big impact. So talk about what are your corporate skills? When you think back on your career at Sprint, what, what's been most important in working with Komen and been sort of the, you know, enabled you to do your, your best for Komen? I think like in most, anything in life, relationship building, you know, the ability to build relationship with people, to build trust, respect, build a network, being able to communicate and have this can-do attitude. I think I was groomed and raised to be a survivor. One of my things in life, I always said, you know, the team energizer bunny is because I'll remove any obstacle in front of me. But I also use that motto that when life hands you lemons, you have the option to live with a sour taste in your mouth or you can make sweet lemonade. Which one are you going to do? Anything that uh, you want to highlight that has been challenging in being as involved as you are in, a, in philanthropy and in a philanthropic organization? I think the most challenging thing for me is it was very difficult for me to ask people for money. You're a salesperson. How could you not be, how could it be hard to ask anybody for money? Because I was asking my friends. I was asking people I knew. Too personal. I didn't feel like I was, when you're in sales, you're giving a service or a product in exchange. So there, I felt like there was no exchange and everybody has the cause that they're supportive of. But what I've learned is that I'm not asking for myself. I'm asking for other people. And I feel because I have been given this new lease on life twice, that I have a responsibility and an opportunity to give other women the same opportunity I had to see my children grow. What a, that's wonderful. Now, I know you are thinking about phasing out of your involvement with Komen. So what do you see with the rest of your third act or your fourth act or fifth act or wherever you go to next? I have not made a total decision on that. So I'm, I'm still looking at options. I am not done contributing, giving, and... I would like to see where gaps are in the community and where I can contribute and serve. So more philanthropic work, those in your future? Absolutely. I start volunteering on Monday at a COVID-19 vaccine station. <laughs> what are you going to do? Well, whatever needs to be done, you know, pushing paperwork, guiding people for the process. You know, I, I'm not working. I can help. They need volunteers. That's a great idea. That is a great idea. So Chantal, I thought about naming this podcast, I'm Not Done Yet, because I feel like I'm not done. Good grief, you're not done, Energizer Bunny that you are. In addition to giving back, what else aren't you done with yet in your life? You know, I'm not done making lemonade. That's the first thing. You know I'm the Energizer Bunny, so I will keep going and going. And I'm not done living, loving, cooking, contributing. <laughs> so it's been so wonderful. Thank you so much for joining Third Act. Where can we find you online? So I'm on Facebook. My name is Chantal Breifogel. I'm on Twitter at Miss Chantal FR for France. And on Instagram, Chantal Breifogel. And my email is Chantal at yahoo.com. We will put that in the show notes, but thank you very much. And we look forward to hearing more about your adventures. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining me today to listen to the Third Act podcast. 
You can find show notes, guest bios, and more at thirdactpodcast.com. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. I'm your host, Liz Tinkham. I'll be back next week with another guest who's found new meaning and fulfillment in the third act of their life.